We sometimes take the most remarkable things for granted. If we give any thought at all to the division of our lives between day and night, it would probably be to think of what activities we should be engaged in for that particular time of day or night. But what about the very thing that separates day from night? Astronomy writer Bob Berman has taken a step back to examine our sun and how we've come to understand the sometimes unsuspected ways in which it directs our lives. The result is his new book, The Sun's Heartbeat and Other Stories from the Life of the Star that Powers Our Planet. Said author James Tabar after reading it, I will never be able to regard the sun nor the future beneath it in quite the same way. Bob Berman is a columnist and consulting editor for Astronomy Magazine. He's also the astronomy editor for one of our favorites, the Old Farmer's Almanac. For 17 years, he wrote the popular Night Watchman column for Discover Magazine. Mr. Berman also earns extra points with us for hosting a radio program on the Northeast Public Radio Network. We've enjoyed his work for years and agreed with New Scientist Magazine's thumbs-up assessment of the sun's heartbeat. So it's our great pleasure to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Bob Berman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we start off by noting the sun literally does have a rhythm to its activity? People don't appreciate this. It's somewhat reminiscent of a heartbeat. It gets full of spots, then clears up again in a repeating cycle. What, what do we know about this pattern? Well, more and more, that's for sure. It was first uh, discovered a few centuries ago um, by Galileo and his competitor, uh, a Jesuit uh, priest named uh, Shiner, Rudolf Shiner, who... Uh, turned out they had a constant series of, of battles over who was first to discover what on the sun. It was almost like a Woody Allen movie, a neurotic back-and-forth exchange between the two, but both of them discovered sunspots. But we only learned a good century and a half later that they come and go, and that this wasn't just a, a meaningless series of dots on the sun, that it actually affects Earth. So there's really lots to it, because when there were more black spots on the sun, you'd think the sun would be, well, darker and cooler. But just the opposite is true. The more spots on the sun, the more storms, the more activity, and the more the areas surrounding those spots are brilliant. So the sun actually gets brighter, more energetic, sends rays our way of various uh, types in the electromagnetic spectrum, and influences Earth. Well, no sooner had scientists begun tracking sunspots in the 1600s when they virtually disappeared. And then we now know this disappearance, and, and there's been nothing quite like it since, was accompanied by very cold weather here on Earth in this era of global warming. That's a, that's a very curious episode. Curious and, and maybe desirable right now. Yes, for a whole human lifetime from 1645 to 1715, which oddly enough coincided with the sun king in France, <laughs> his reign. Uh, we had no sunspots at all, essentially. And the 11-year sunspot cycle just stopped in its tracks. And when it did so, Earth got colder and colder. These were the harshest uh, winter periods in, in the colonial America. And Europe had the Thames freeze solid, the canals of Venice freeze, things that nobody had seen before. It was a terrible time, time of great hardship. And uh, now that we have the uh, world actually getting warmer, thanks to uh, human meddling, uh, it would not be a bad idea if the sun should choose this time to go into a prolonged period of quiet. We, we, we had something very similar to that in, uh, from 2006 to 2009 when we had the 
longest sunspot minimum, an absence of sunspots that any living observer today has ever seen. So the sun has actually been quieter, fainter, and uh, made Earth uh, cooler than it would have been even in recent times. But nobody knows if this is a harbinger of another lifelong um, what's now called the Maunder Minimum, when the spots totally disappear. We'll have to wait and see. The great astronomer Johannes Kepler, whom you wrote about in the Old Farmer's Almanac, uh, worked out the relative distances of our planets uh, some time back, but those absolute numbers were hard to come by, and scientists were getting embarrassed about this. You talk about this in the book. Uh, someone got the idea that if that rare transit event of Venus in front of the Sun might be able to solve this puzzle using parallax, the phenomenon we've named the show after. Uh, can you talk about those Venus transits and how they didn't quite maybe turn out the way they'd hoped? That's right. That's right. The show is named Parallax. Well, Parallax is very cool. You have to start off with doing something like, um, which would be very odd in public, so you could do this in privacy without uh, attracting too much uh, attention. Hold a finger up in front of your uh, face, maybe a, a, a foot in front of you, one finger up, and then close one eye and then the other. In other words, alternately blink eyes, and you'll notice that that finger jumps back and forth relative to the background wall or whatever it is you're looking toward. And the amount that the finger jumps really tells you how far away it is if you know the distance between your eyes. Well, this is trigonometric parallax, and the same thing can be done as uh, Earth. Uh, is used as a base. In other words, if you have an observer on one part of Earth and uh, on another, and they observe the moon at the same moment, and they report to each other what background stars are behind the moon, they can compare notes and actually determine the distance of the moon using a simple trigonometry. And this was done by the 1700s. We knew the, the moon exactly. But if we could do this uh, to find out the distance to the sun, we then know the distance to all the planets because it all fits together as a relationship. And one way to do this would be for observers to observe the transit of Venus when Venus crosses the face of the sun. It's very rare. It happens only two times in a century. And that's why transits were so special for so many years. We have one coming up now on June 5th. This will be the last transit that anybody will see until the year 2117. So unless you're going to really eat those health foods <laughs> and, uh, and extend your membership at the gym, uh, you better catch this one. It's the last one. Well, I did want to note for our listeners that that event is coming up and that there's, I know Astronomy Magazine's offering tours for people to go to Hawaii, even if they're that interested in it. Uh, some may want to do that, but it's visible here in the U.S. and in California. How, how should one best prepare to watch it? Well, definitely get some eye protection ahead of time. And uh, I like shade number 12 welder's goggles. So you, you have to go to a welding supply store, and you'll never find these at the mall. You know, <laughs> usually in the worst part of town where there's snarling dogs and, and, and fences behind them. Well, the welding supply store, and you don't even need to buy the whole goggle unless you're going to be repairing your car at the same time. You just have to get the replacement filters. And shade number 12, shade number 14, both of those work just fine and let you stare at the sun uh, indefinitely and safely. And Venus will be a little dot crossing the face of the sun on the afternoon of June 5th coming up. Now, if you trust yourself to do this, I think the best 
equipment of all would be binoculars. Mm. But here you have to be careful, and you'd want to put the welding goggles, the welding filter, in front of the part of the binocular with a big lens, in other words, the objective lens. In other words, you're blocking the light before it even gets into the binocular. Right. Don't, don't let the light of the sun in and then block it just where your eye is. Yeah. Block it ahead of time. And since if it slips while you're observing it, even a, a moment of direct sunlight through binoculars can blind you, this would have to be something that you would tape on, perhaps, with duct tape, make it absolutely foolproof, idiot-proof, don't let a child or anyone else handle it. And uh, if you were sure that it was absolutely foolproof, then that would be the best instrument of all for observing the transit, because through these protected binoculars, the Venus will just be in a, an amazing object as it slowly crosses the face of the sun on the afternoon of June 5th. And as I said, nobody's going to see this again because the lineup between the Sun and Venus and uh, Earth is uh, extremely rare for this to happen. Well, I want to talk about viewing solar eclipses in, in a few minutes uh, at, at greater length, but I, I do want to note, as a fellow radio host, I was impressed by a call you once got from a woman where you were talking about how to avoid the dangers of eye damage during an eclipse, and she, she made a rather irked phone call to you. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, talking about how you mustn't stare at the sun because you can damage your eyes. And a woman called the station and said, if the eclipse is so dangerous, why are they having it? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's one reason we seldom take calls on this program. <laughs> After giving a lecture, uh, sometimes, once in a while, you'll get an audience where the people are shy. Uh -huh. And uh, so I, I tell them, don't. Don't, don't hesitate to ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. But I realize I'm lying. There, there are incredibly stupid questions. Can you give just one more example? Well, I hate to say it, but my, my wife's mom coming to visit. We live uh, in the country, in the mountains here, where it's really the skies are quite dark. And all I can think is she... She must have been looking up at the stars and must have never seen so many stars in the sky, having been raised uh, in cities all her life and mm -hmm. then moved to Florida, southern Florida, where the skies are just a milky, glowing mess all the time. Because she came in and she said to my wife, what are all those little dots in the sky? <laughs> and my wife said, those are stars, Bob. Can you imagine that, a person who has, who has to ask what stars are because they've never seen them their whole life? I mean, this is extraordinary. Well, Bob, i got friends that live in L.A., so it's not that far removed from the situations no, we no, find no, in California. Same thing. Yeah, same thing in, in, in L.A. See, we had another uh, gentleman after a, a lecture say, uh, how did the astronauts, in order to get to the moon... How were they able to steer around all those stars? <laughs> Watching too much Star Trek, perhaps. Right? And then a, a girl in high school uh, seeing a picture of the Earth taken by the astronauts, the blue planet Earth. She said, what keeps the blue from falling off? <laughs> oh, my. Let's talk about the Earth acting as a magnet. You have a couple chapters exploring this and how it all ties together with sunspots and things, and, and we know that a compass points, uh, of course, in one direction, but I guess when Edward Maunder went back in the eight, or determined in the 1800s that sunspots 
were associated with magnetism, uh, he was roundly attacked for that. And he thought it would have something to do with the auroras that we see on Earth. And, he, and he, of course, he turned out he was right. He was right. And that's because we normally don't think of magnetism as a heavy hitter, as a major player in anything. You know, we've had magnets on our refrigerators, and it just doesn't seem to be a, a, a powerful enough to, to do much. But we've now discovered that of course, not only does Earth have a rather weak magnetic field, but the sunspots are places, are storms on the sun, where magnetism is thousands of times more intense than the rest of the sun. But it turns out that magnetism is the major player on the sun. There's a magnetic field generated about 70% of the distance from the Earth's center toward the outside of an area called the tachocline, and from there, the storms, the coronal mass ejections, the flares, everything that we see on the sun, the 11-year cycle, it all comes from magnetism. And uh, so it's fascinating. And since we also have a magnetic field, the interplay is uh, what causes many of the effects we see. For example, when the sun throws out uh, some of itself, it's like a shotgun blast of broken bits of atoms, uh, up to 10 billion tons of it at a time. And these broken bits of atoms, which are particles, ionized particles, since they're not neutral, they are susceptible to being captured or channeled by a magnetic field. So when they reach Earth, they have their own the swarm has its own magnetic field. Now, if north could be up or north could be down, if its magnetic field is opposite to Earth's, you know, on our magnetic field we have north, up, south, down, if it is reversed, then alone will it transfer its power to Earth, and we'll see vivid displays of the aurora borealis. We'll see northern lights that start to encroach more and more to southerly regions. In a great coronal mass ejection from the sun, we can get auroras all the way down to Mexico or so. They can be that vivid. But if the sunspot uh, storm is thrown in our direction with the magnetic polarity matching Earth's, well, then Earth's magnetic field or magnetosphere will just harmlessly channel the material from the sun around us, and it'll, it'll be a shield, and it'll just continue on through space. So the magnetic polarity is very important. You know, I love one thing you had in your book, advocating people getting together to call each other up when the aurora are due. But uh, I think that's more of an opportunity people uh, living up in New York like you do than California. We, we get kind of like, but we're kind of behind the eight ball on that one, I think. Well, you just need a community that's dark because you're not going to see an aurora if you're living in a large city. You need yeah. dark skies because the aurora often is only as bright as the Milky Way. But sometimes it's, it's quite a bit brighter than that. So if you're in a place that's dark enough so that the Milky Way shines, uh, then you're in a position to see the aurora well. And in a community like that, there's usually no advance notice. Sure, we know when a solar storm is happening, and that's because of the new flotilla of spacecraft that are monitoring the sun with great names like Source and Stereo and Ace and Trace. And, and uh, these are constantly looking for solar explosions and when they happen and if they're aimed in our direction we know that between two and four days later we may get auroral displays but we still don't know whether the magnetic polarity is correct so often there are false alarms 
And uh, the best way to tell is when some observer starts seeing a glow to the north and then starts calling his or her friends, and uh, everybody just tells everybody else. And that, that's the best thing to do. We had a northern lights alert like that in my community back uh, 20 years ago, and it worked well for a while. The book is The Sun's Heartbeat and other stories from the life of the star that powers our planet. We're speaking with author Bob Berman. Bob, you're talking about like these coronal mass ejections that come off the sun and trigger auroras. There's actually websites now. Uh, one, I, one I followed, spaceweather.com, talked about how many sunspots there were and such things. This is, this is kind of remarkable, especially uh, in view of the fact you mentioned in the book that even as late as the 1950s, this whole idea of a solar wind was thought to be kind of a crazy idea. It was. It was Gene Parker, who was a visionary, really, a physicist, who first suggested the idea, and he was ridiculed. Uh, people said, oh, yeah, sure, <laughs> a wind blowing from the sun, sure, <laughs> a wind of charged particles, but he was absolutely right. And it turns out that uh, between the steady stream of material that's coming from the sun, uh, plus the sun losing 4 million tons of itself every second as it converts its mass into all the nice light and heat that we've come to enjoy and appreciate. The sun, and that's not abstract. The sun is actually 4 million tons lighter every second. If you had a giant scale and could weigh the sun, it weighs 4 million tons less every second. So it, it, it's losing its body. It's changing slowly over time because of that. And as it sends material to Earth, especially in the greatest type of explosions discovered only in the 1970s, which are the coronal mass ejections, or CMEs, and these are the ones that can produce not just auroras, but damage here on Earth. Yeah, you're talking about, you know, it's pretty clear that having an atmosphere and magnetic field is something we're taking for granted, among other things. But I was really disconcerted by your descriptions of astronauts going to the moon getting blasted by cosmic rays and seeing them, actually seeing them as flashes inside their eyes. Yes, the Apollo astronauts. We are protected here on the Earth's surface, especially in more equatorial regions, but even people living in the far north, like in Alaska, are protected to a large degree by our atmosphere, which blocks a lot of the incoming particles, and also by our magnetosphere. It's a shield that protects us. But the Apollo astronauts who went to the moon we're not just outside our, our atmosphere, but outside our magnetic field. And they started to see these flashes, just as you said, Doug. It would look like a meteor streaking across their field of view. And it would happen about once a minute. Now, these people, a lot of them were old Navy pilots, and they knew from long experience that you never, ever <laughs> report that anything's wrong with you to the authorities, to doctors, or to anybody. But they talked among themselves, and when they realized they were all experiencing it, then they reported it. And it was happening because uh, giant particles from the sun, protons, were uh, smashing through their brains at the rate of about uh, one a minute. And unfortunately, in any moon landings, and more importantly, if we ever send colonists to Mars, Mars has no magnetic field, has no shielding, and neither does the moon. And so they will be constantly hit by solar radiation in the form of these charged particles coming from the sun. Particularly worrisome are the uh, 
storms from the sun, the coronal mass ejections that can happen anytime. They happen most often during the peak of the sunspot cycle, which is now coming up here in 2012, 2013, 2014. These will be the three strongest years for them, but they can really happen any time, and they are not good for you. In fact, one estimate is that a two-year Mars mission, astronauts, even though they will have some shielding, they'll lose anywhere between 15 and 40 percent of their brain cells. Wow. (laughs) Even us smart people can't can't handle that. Wow. I had not heard that particularly disconcerting number. I'm, I'm very depressed. But yes, in fact, Shannon Lucid, the American astronaut who spent more time in space than any other woman, fears that this is going to be a stopper. Despite all the collective thoughts about Mars being an uh, ultimate goal and we're going to colonize Mars someday, she thinks it's not going to happen just because it's just so deleterious to health. And already there's some talk about the only astronauts that we'd send there would never be young people, but we'd send older astronauts who have less life to lose Jeez. Uh, up there. It's not exactly a health spa. Wow. Well, speaking of health, many moons ago when I was a physician in training, I was told that uh, things like the ER and the maternity ward, they would go nuts during full moons. So I made a point to track the nights we had of full moons and found no correlation to how busy we were. I was pleased to see that in the sun's heartbeat, you also debunked this myth, but I'm not sure that it's it's ever going to die. It's true, because we humans, for some reason, are built to see cycles and patterns and to try to match them with other patterns. And patterns always bring uh, people out of the woodwork. Uh, I get lots of letters uh, every day, actually, from people who are matching up this with this and saying, have you ever considered this with that? And, of course... We have patterns with the sun, the 11-year sunspot cycle, and we have lots of things we might match up with them. Wars, periods of uh, economic downturns, and uh, thousands of things we could match up with the 11-year periodicity. And there's only been 24 well-studied sunspot cycles, and we know the dates. And so it's very tempting to match them with, uh, with stuff. In fact, we find that the length of women's skirts does match with the sunspot cycle, the rabbit population of Australia, the, uh, the uh, party that controls Congress, and lots of other things that we're assuming are coincidences. But there are other things that it appears really do match up. For example, the position of the Gulf Stream, that river of ocean water that flows up the East Coast, and uh, the thickness of our atmosphere, the longevity of Earth satellites, the price, believe it or not, the price of, uh, of grain, hmm. of bread does seem to match up because of crops respond to these things. So sunspot cycle really does have, a, have an effect on us. The full moon, as you mentioned, Doug, is, uh, is another one because it's so obvious everybody knows what the full moon looks like, and uh, it's very tempting to match that up, and uh, that's why health professionals have noticed this for a long time. They'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, full moon, here we go, going to be a lot of births. Yeah, and uh, in in the maternity wing of the hospital, but if there are uh, fewer births, nobody says anything. Or if the moon, if there are a lot of births and the moon is not full, or maybe it's a cloudy night and nobody has even seen the moon, people are still likely to say, "Yeah, it must be a full moon." We quiet night the air. I'd look around and say, "Everyone, take note. Tonight's a full moon. It's a quiet night. Nobody listened to me. Wouldn't matter." <laughs> that's right. That's right. So these things, 
uh, just from repetition, they uh, they get believed, and only careful studies, only careful statistical studies, show what's real and what isn't, and and this is one of them. There's been a lot of studies on births and the and the full moon. In fact, there's been studies on births and crime and all sorts of things. Full moon, uh, how that correlates with with uh, with crime or with calls to crises centers. In other words, intervention centers, uh, admissions to uh, mental hospitals, things like that, and uh, none of that correlates. So even the, a lot of the beliefs that people think they see regarding the full moon and life and sol- solar cycles and, and everyday life uh, turn out not to be valid. Let's hold it there and take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. In segment three, we'll continue our talk with Bob Berman. Don't go away. This- 